I'm going to read the scariest, what are for some people the scariest words in the Bible. So here we go. Okay. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. We're going to talk about them. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible that those once enlightened and have tasted of the gift, heavenly gift, and have shared of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the coming age, after falling away, to be renewed again to repentance, because in themselves they've crucified again the Son of God and exposed him to ridicule. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your grace as we look at the strong exhortation nestled in the middle of the theology of Hebrews. We ask that you would give us insight to understand what are the real dangers and the real safety in the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So they're sobering words. They've worried a lot of people. What do they mean? Well, look at the verses. Verse 4, it's real believers. They've tasted salvation in the Holy Spirit. They've known the goodness of the Word of God. They've seen miracles, actually. It says they've seen the powers of the coming age, and they, and they can't be renewed. Why? Verse 6 says they can't be renewed because they've crucified Christ again and exposed him to ridicule. Right? They've crucified Christ again somehow. What does this mean? Well, ridicule suggested in some way they are repudiating the cross. In some way they are making the cross null and void. How? In the first century, probably in this Jewish context, by saying the cross is not necessary. Today, in different ways as well, people say the cross is not necessary. And verse 8, so sobering, the end of such is burning. Oh, you know, wow, these are weighty verses. Then he injects some hope. Look at verse 9. He says, but we're persuaded concerning you, beloved, of better things pertaining to salvation, even though we speak this way. For God's not unjust to overlook your work and love which you've shown in his name and you've served in serving the saints. So then they call them to zeal. We desire each of you to show the same zeal, full assurance of hope to the end. Oh, interesting. Exhorting them to hope in order that you might not be slackers, but imitators of those who, through faith and endurance, inherit the promises. So this fascinating argument will uh, unpack a little bit. We're going to look at a larger section of Hebrews this morning. But man, what a workover, right? I mean, he's just hitting them with such strong words. And why does he do this? So jump back to chapter 5, verse 11. He's going to try to introduce some honestly more sophisticated teaching, which we will not get to till next week because he takes the chapter and a half to pause and get them ready. But verse 11, he says, speaking of, he's speaking of Melchizedek in context, right? He says, concerning whom we have a word to say that's long and difficult to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he's going to go in and uh, take some time for a chapter and a half and say, I would like to give you an understanding of the priesthood of Jesus, but I'm going to have some trouble because you become dull of hearing. And then he gives them this long exhortation, right? They're dull of hearing. They become dull. So one of the things we're going to see this morning is that you cannot stay in a place of dullness as a believer. And we'll talk about what that is. You can't sit still. You're either 
moving forward to maturity, or you can actually be heading toward an anesthetized unbelief. It's a sober thing that he's talking about today. So our thesis here is we must press on to maturity. But how do we press on to maturity? Well, there's several paths to maturity, and it's a big passage, so we're just going to take a look at three pieces of the argument here, and I think it will come together, all right? So how do we press on to maturity? Several paths to maturity. The first path to maturity is learning obedience through suffering. Obedience through suffering. Now, to, to give you some context here, uh, if you're looking at your Bible, I hope you're looking at your Bible, not just up there, although they're nice about sticking stuff up there, but look at your Bible. In chapter 4, he starts to talk about the priesthood of Jesus, which is one of the major themes of the book, right? And then right at the beginning of chapter 5, he starts talking about this, uh, this guy, Melchizedek, who was some kind of priest back in Abraham's day. We'll talk about that next week, right? But look at chapter 5, verse 6. He says, just as it says in another place, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he introduces this Melchizedek guy. And then again, verse 10, Jesus has been proclaimed by God a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's the topic now he's going to pause for a chapter and a half, and chapter 7, verse 1, he picks up that argument. That, that's our larger structure, okay? So he's pausing, so don't get confused, right? He's pausing, and he's going to talk about some things in the middle to get them ready for some deeper teaching, all right? So, uh, so he pauses to say they're not quite ready, and if you were to read through chapter 5, 1 through 10 real carefully, here's what you'd see, and we'll just look at a couple verses, but verses 5 through 10 in, in chapter 5, 1 through 4, he says, you know, the priests in the Old Covenant couldn't choose themselves. They were chosen by God. In the same way, Jesus, he quotes Psalm 2, Jesus didn't choose himself to be the high priest. God chose him, right? Then he says, also in verse 5, that God declared him a priest, and he quotes another psalm. And then, after being perfected, verse 9 says he becomes a source of our salvation. Great. Now our focus for this point. Read chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, and I'm going to give you a very literal translation so that you pick up the fact that the main verb comes at the end. Okay, so here we go. Verses 7 and 8, talking about Jesus. He who in the days of his flesh, offering prayers and entreaties to the one able to save him from death, with strong cries and tears, was being heard on account of his reverence. No, no main verb yet, right? Although he was a son, here we go. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now that you have the main point, I'll read it again slowly, but listen to the main points at the end. Speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offering prayers and entreaties to the one able to save him from death, with strong cries and tears, and being heard on account of his reverence, and although he was a son, learned obedience from the things he suffered. You see what the author is doing? He's giving us this big context. Author of Hebrews seems to be kind of a classicist. He gives these really long Greek sentences. But he makes one main point. He learned obedience. So you'll notice in verse 7, it's again like earlier in chapter 4 and really chapter 2. He's emphasizing this human side of Jesus and we wonder if maybe he's talking about Gethsemane, but, you know, he's like strong cries and he's suffering. Oh, you know, Father, hear me, right? He's really modeling this heartfelt prayer, strong cries and tears, 
heard because of his reverence, his obedience, but he learned obedience from the things he suffered. All the other kind of verb-like words are what we call participles, and they're what we call attendant participles, or giving the attendant circumstances of the main point, even, think of this, even the sinless son of God had to learn obedience in suffering. That even though he had no sin, it cost him to obey. The author's considering the dullness of his hearers, but also that they did love others in the past. They've lost property. They've had some good experiences. But he wants them to see what it cost Jesus humanly to be obedient. He had to suffer. What's he saying? Well, in one sense, it's unique, right? Because that opened up salvation for us. But in another, another sense, he's an example that you cannot fulfill your calling without suffering. Paul says something similar in Philippians 3.10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, yeah, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed even in the likeness of his death, right? Now, we should distinguish here. He's talking about one kind of suffering, but there's three kinds of sufferings, right? There's the suffering of our own folly, right? Going down an interstate in hilly Colorado with a 35-foot travel trailer, people coming to a stop in the right lane really rapidly, shifting to the left lane but not slowing down fast enough and totaling my van, right? That's a discipline, <laughs> that's, a, that's a learning, that's a suffering from my own folly. I should have slammed on the brakes, right? Okay, so that's a, you know, you suffer from your own mistakes. That's a certain kind of suffering. Then there's oppositional suffering, right? So corrective suffering is our own folly. Oppositional suffering is the fallen world, and, and you want to obey, and there's just kind of a, I, I, to obey, I'm going to have to be challenged. I'm going to have to die to things in myself. I'm going to have to resist pressures from the world, peer pressure, whatever it might be, right? There's a suffering involved in that, right? That's an oppositional suffering. But then what he's talking about here, Jesus, of course, the final redeemer, but even in a small way, we have a small, our redemptive suffering, the suffering involved in helping another, right? Doing nursery or helping cook a meal for 3C. It's a, you know, it, it, you're reaching out to your neighbor. There's a complication, kind of a redemptive suffering in bringing ministry to others. Now, something I want us to think about, because we're talking about this very sober passage, right? How can this go wrong? Unwillingness to resist sin can cause an unbelief. An example of this going on in the church right now is those that want to adapt and change, this is one example, adapt and change the sexual ethics of the Bible to avoid the pressure of the world. Now, I'm not saying that all people that do that are apostate, but I'm saying that's in our age, 
the kinds of things that the author of Hebrews would warn against. This is where we're starting to flirt with, I don't want that oppositional suffering, and so I'm going to adjust so I can just sort of show the world that, you know, we get it, we understand, we're not narrow-minded, right? That's the pressure. That's not, we're not talking about, okay, you want to do the right thing and, oh, my, you fell. That's not what he's talking about. But he is talking about the temptation to, well, I'm going to adjust what I think, going to kind of reinterpret the Bible to fit that is what he's talking about. So the, by obeying when it's not comfortable, we learn obedience and we join in a small way. We join Christ in his sufferings. Colossians, Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not meaning there was anything lacking in the redemption, but he's saying that every believer who gets involved in really Redemptive ministry will pay a price, and we fill up his suffering. We bring life to others by being willing to stand. The first path to maturity is learning obedience through suffering. There's another path to maturity. The second path to maturity is to hold the fundamental truth. So here we look at chapter 5, and I will read a little bit here because I want you to see the context. At the very end of chapter 5, 11 to 14, we started reading it before I read it again. He says, concerning whom, talking about Melchizedek, concerning whom we have a word to say this long and difficult to explain since you become dull in hearing. For even although considering the time you ought to be teachers, our context, we might use the word disciplers. doesn't mean they're all going to be standing, you know, doing teaching for 40 people, but you ought to be disciplers. You have need again that someone teach you the elementary principles from the beginning of God's oracles. And you become those having need of milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk lacks experience with teaching about righteousness, for he is a babe. But, listen to verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who have by practice trained the senses to distinguish between good and evil. There it is. They've trained the senses to distinguish between good and evil. And so they ought to be teachers, he says, I think he means disciples, right? You know, instructing others in the faith, one to, each one invest in one, right? Passing on the faith. That, by the way, should be a goal for every believer. Every season of your life, right? Just find some friend and just bring them with you, what you're learning that year. Just, just each one invest in one, right? That's, that's a goal. That's a prayer goal for us in this congregation, that each one would just invest in one other person at least, maybe a few others, depending on how God wired you. So they ought to be passing on the faith. And then he says, milk's not appropriate for spiritual adults, right? You should be gaining deep, deeper understanding. Now there's a tension here. And I'll just explain it. You know, I think, most of you sitting here, that knowledge alone is not the deal, right? You want to, one man said, it's not how many verses you master, it's how many verses master you, <laughs> right? Amen, right? And so, so it's certainly the first discipline I want to encourage you in is to go deep with a few truths and, and meditate, reflect deeply, pray. Always do that first. But he is saying to the mature believer, you got to start reading this book. Right? You got to start getting a handle on what's going on in Genesis to Revelation. You should not remain in only knowing 12 verses, the 20th year, you're a Christian, right? You should be getting to get a handle on how this thing fits together 
so that you exercise your understanding, right? We need people, verse 14, that have, have worked through and understand the significance and develop moral discernment. You need moral discernment in your life. But let's just say this. Not all of you, and that's fine, but, but many of you, you're college educated, you've been exposed to some, some issues. The body of Christ is going to be leaning on you to know the word, to know the issues in education, society, biotechnology, and to discern good and evil. Right? When I want to think through medical policy, I might call up Kevin Peterson, right? He's not just a doctor, he's a, a you know, he's studying and thinking all the time, right? But you, you find who, you know, People that need to, they need to grapple with the issues of our age, or we're just going to be like little lemmings. Oh, yeah, I guess that sounds good. I guess, oh, they can do it. I guess if they can do it, they should do it. See, we need, you need to be, we need some people that know the word of God, and they know what's going on around them. And they're relating the two, developing maturity, discernment in good and evil. We need you to do that. You're gifted. You thinkers, you care. We've got to be discerning. The body of Christ needs us to do what we're called to do as university church. But then there are some fundamentals, and you can't ignore them. So quickly, just look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the beginning, teaching about Christ, let's move on to maturity, not laying again a foundation, and then he lays the foundation, <laughs> of repentance from dead works and faith in God, teaching about baptism or maybe washings and laying out of hands, resurrection from the dead, and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. Now, what I want to say about this is this. There are fundamentals. First things, repentance and faith, turning from sin. sin why do we turn from sin? Not because God wants to cut out the party, but because sin is deadly and because God loves us, but God is holy. You know, read the Old Testament sometime. You find out that the reason sin is so deadly is because God is so holy and he wants us in his presence. And so he's got to work salvation so we can be forgiven and cleansed and enjoy Life in his presence. That's what the tabernacle is all about. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. Right? It's God's heart to live in fellowship with us. Hallelujah. And so it's deadly. Living trustfully in Christ, uh, baptisms or maybe washings, one of the things that's been noted is that all of these things he talks about are all Jewish, and they are themselves not necessarily Christian. He's talking to Jewish Christians and saying these are all have a place. So he might not mean baptism. He might mean uh, washings. But then laying on of hands, of course, which is both healing, right? There's the healing ministry of laying on of hands. There's the imparting of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was usually laying on of hands. There is the commissioning to ministry, the laying on of hands. He's talking about just ministry that occurs in that way. And then, of course, the final things, the um, resurrection and judgment are final hope. So again, let's reflect on this severe warning of apostasy and how this might relate to this point. Losing, leaving behind repentance from sin is a source of unbelief. Let me explain. Every sincere believer, you've got wrestlings with sin. And what the sincere believer does is as soon as we're convicted, we repent and we're forgiven. 
Leaving behind repentance is when you say it's no longer necessary. That's the step. That's the step of danger. When you say you don't need to repent. Grace just covers. Well, grace does cover, but it covers with repentance because God loves us. And that's the key, the discerning issue when churches begin to say it's all covered no matter what you do. I'm not saying they're past I'm saying that's one of the dangers that the author of Hebrews is warning about. Right? Again, we don't do that because we're afraid. <laughs> we repent because he loves us and we want to be free. Is the danger in our day right now what churches are saying? Now, Christianity is more than those six things, but it's not less. And so again, let me give you just three quick applications to think about in that regard. Are you pouring into at least one other person? So you're not like the Hebrews. You're not dull of hearing. Hallelujah. So he's going to encourage you. So be a teacher. Not necessarily have a class like Amy, although you can do, if you're gifted, do it, do it, right? Okay, but, but you can be pouring into one or two or three other people and loving them and helping them to grow in Christ. That's an ordinary thing for a Christian to do. Saturate in Scripture and wrestle with the moral issues of our day. Get experience with the teaching about righteousness. So the second path to maturity is to hold to the fundamental truth, to saturate in the Scriptures. The final path to maturity we'll talk about today is in Hebrews 6, 11 to 15, and this is the best. Enduring hope. This is where we really begin to see what he's warning them about. Now, it's a mess in Greek. I'll just tell you that. So if Amy's back there translating, have fun. Uh, I've got a translation already, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a mess because the, the, uh, the author of Hebrews is a classicist. He's trying to kind of bring back the Attic style and Athens, Athens Greek style. So it's really long. So I'm going to give you something sort of literal. If you don't like it, just read your own. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Verse 11. We want each of you to show the same zeal with the full measure of hope to the end in order that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. All right, so be zealous. Why? Here we go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, in very truth, I will surely bless you and surely multiply you. So keep track of this before we read the rest of the passage. Verse 13 is the promise. Verse 14 is the oath, okay? So when he mentions those, that's what he's talking about. Verse 13 is the promise. Verse 14 is the oath. So then he says... The response on Abraham's part. And by thus waiting patiently, he obtained the promise. That's almost the whole Bible right there. Okay? That's almost the whole Bible right there, right? That God promised, took an oath, and Abraham believed. That's really almost the whole thing right there. Then he says in verse 16, For men swear by the greater and the oath with the promise of purpose of confirmation... In this, because God wished even more to show those who inherit the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he intervened with an oath in order that on account of two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, what's he talking about? The promise and the oath, okay? <laughs> Don't lose track of them. Why did he do all this stuff? Here it is, verse 18, first part of verse 19. So that we who have fled to refuge 
might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that lies ahead, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and firm. And he talks about, moves into the Holy of Holies. Starts to segue to his next topic. Does that make sense? He makes a promise, he takes an oath, and he says, so you see what he's doing? He's saying, how can you really trust God? Here they are, they're being persecuted for believing in Jesus. They're under pressure to compromise. They're under pressure to kind of minimize the Jesus thing. He says, just go back to Father Abraham. And look what happened. God promised, then he took an oath, and he did it. Because here you are today believing in Jesus. He kept his promise. So you can know he's going to keep his promise to you. It's that simple. Well, if they had encouragement... In the first century, what kind of encouragement do we have? Some people say one billion children of Abraham alive on earth today. Maybe half that, depending on how strict your theology is. Okay, but you get what I'm saying, right? Wow. God kept his promise. That was back in, about 2000 BC. You know, maybe it'd be off a little bit. Anyway, you know, promise to this old guy. Now, one billion people are trusting in that same God. He kept his promise that his children would be like the sand of the seashore, the stars of the sky. So he's saying to them, that's the anchor anchor for your soul. Now, you know, anchors, so we fish in canoes. Ian and I and well, a bunch of us, yeah, a bunch of us, we fish in canoes. And we usually forget the anchor, which if you're, tro- if you're trolling, that's fine, right? Because you're like, you know, going back and forth and you're using your rappelle and boom, you know, they get you. Okay, that's great. But once in a while, you're fishing for splake. It's a blend of trout. Okay, anyway, fishing for splake and you want to stay right over one spot and we always forget the anchor. You drop the, the lure, right? And the wind comes and you're 20 feet over and you're away from that fish, right? Because you don't have any anchor. So he's saying, this hope is the anchor that keeps you over the place of fruitfulness. Hope is... At, so here's the irony. I got people that will come to me and say, oh, I'm worried I've committed the unpardonable sin or, you know, it's the Hebrews reply to me. You know, you know, it's like, not if you're worried about it, <laughs> right? If you're worried about it, you're not one of them, right? <laughs> you're not apostate, right? But uh, that's the quick pastoral answer. But, it's, uh, but more deeply, what keeps you solid? Not fear, hope. Yeah. He said, the solid anchor is looking at what God has done in the past and saying, if that's what he's done in the past, he will fulfill every promise for you. He will be faithful to fulfill every promise for you. That's the anchor for your soul. Hallelujah. Man, oh man. We have a firm anchor for the soul. You know, other hopes are not evil, but they don't always work out. Even in... You know, somebody's trying to follow the Lord, and you think you're going to be, uh, what were you going to be daily? You think you're going to be a, a, what's with the, a, like a pediatrician, and you wind up a pathologist, right? You know, it's still good, right? Yeah, but God draws straight with crooked lines. I thought I was going to be a math teacher, so, you know, uh, didn't turn out. It's okay. Uh, once in a while with my kids. The anchor is God's promise of salvation and fruit. So here's the most serious 
temptation to apostasy that I see in the church today, American church. When churches lose the hope of eternal life, they accommodate to this life. Say that again. When churches lose the hope of eternal life, they accommodate to this life, striving for relevance. True relevance comes when we understand God's analysis of the problem, sin, and God's analysis of the solution, redemption, and then discipleship. So on the more biblically faithful end of the church, the danger is we understand redemption. We don't always understand discipleship. So there's transformation. There is moving on. There is serving in society. There is bringing goodness to the world through Christ. All their hopes can fail you. Our anchor in a tumultuous world is the promise of God, the enduring hope. So the final path to maturity is enduring hope. God gave us a path to maturity that we have to be willing to learn obedience for a little bit of suffering. Sometimes it's in yourself, self-denial. You have to deny yourself and fight against impulses. You may have to walk through a series uh, period of significant soul healing to kind of integrate. You know, sometimes we talk about, we think about sanctification. It's like, oh, I'm just going to try not to sin. Actually, uh, you discover that true spiritual growth is kind of a combination of God's love releasing you from fear and anxiety and then God's holiness freeing you from sin. And they kind of go together. So it kind of overlaps the categories that we think of as emotional and moral, but it's really all our soul. It's all what God's doing. And as we see those integrated, we see that what's something that was impossible for me five years ago, now has kind of become a normal, normal life. And something that I couldn't even envision doing when I was a young Christian, I don't even think about the temptation anymore, right? Those are things, that's what happens as God reveals his love. He expands our soul. He fills us. And at the same time, we grow to appreciate his holiness. It goes together, his love and his holiness. And we find ourselves in wholeness. And so you have a, there's a little effort. There's a little bit of, of, of wrestling with that, the suffering that is involved there. Secondly, learning to hold to fundamental truths. Although the Bible is more than the fundamental truths, it's not less. And so when the world is pushing, as Martin Luther said, I may be professing Christ, but unless I, unless I confess Christ, what it means is to say what the Bible says, where the world's pressure is strongest, I'm professing, but I'm not confessing Christ. I'm not a disciple is what he's trying to say, right? And so we want to be always trusting the Lord in the whole of his revelation, all that he says, not being afraid of that, not being afraid of being looked at uh, down by some. And then, but finally, the biggest thing is enduring in hope. And so so who's danger? Who's in danger of those scary verses at the beginning? It's those who taste Jesus and decide they don't need the cross. They want to change the Bible's morality or eliminate repentance or they've lost hope of heaven. But you know what? We need the cross, don't we? We need the cross, don't we? Can I hear an amen? We need the cross, don't we? Yeah, we need the cross. We all need the cross. Hallelujah. And he came. He died for us. And it's like Elaine and others were sharing earlier. It's not like he's like, oh, okay, I'll take you back. So he's running. He's running. He's running. We don't need to fear. 
We put our hope in Christ alone, and then we learn that obedience, and we'll bring others deeper. Stand with me. Let's pray. As we stand and begin to just let your mind kind of focus on the Lord and just ask yourself in your own heart, Lord, what are you saying? What is my step of growth? What is my, my challenge of obedience this morning to grow deeper, to become fruitful? And just, just kind of wait silently, just a moment. Let you weigh that before him. Jesus. Jesus, we look at you right now. We look at you on the cross. Arms spread wide to embrace the world. We're included in that embrace. You died on the cross so that we could live, live with you consciously in your presence, knowing you by, by the Spirit during this life, living with you all the time, living in joy, living in joy. Hallelujah. I ask you, you close your eyes, bow your heads. and Those here this morning, you say, you know, I, I get it, but I'm hungering for that joy. I just, my heart's a little blocked up. I'm just hungering for that joy. Just lift your hand. We're going to pray for you right now. So I'm hungering for that joy. In Jesus' name, Father, we ask you release the revelation of your joy, your peace, that you came. You came for those that trust in you. You want to bring us fully into the righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom of God. And I pray that for every, every heart here, every person here, every person listening online, the righteousness, peace, and joy of the kingdom would saturate our soul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Father, I also pray, sometimes in the workplace, neighborhood, or family, we may face some pressure. There's a pressure from the world to dodge some of the some of the aspects of the gospel that really run just straight against our world and the culture. Father, I pray in Jesus' name for every one of us. Just give us peace, grace, gracious words honesty in those moments to know how to minister graciously to bring your truth to a broken world just pray that the courage and the, the graciousness to speak the words that you'd give us hallelujah hallelujah now may the love of God the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.